Well, you're in for a treat tonight. We have uh, Dr. Jim Custer with us as our special guest this evening to uh, talk with us about uh, signs of the times and, you know, what's going on in our world in light of biblical prophecy. You know, I was flipping through some files recently, and I found a paper that I wrote in college 29 years ago called The Coming One World Government. 1980, I wrote it. And flipped through it, and it just, you know, it must have seemed far-fetched at the time. But now, reading it, it looked like last month's headlines. <laughs> uh, so much has happened in our world since Dr. Custer was with us last, which was about a year ago, that uh, I finally just said, you know, I've got to ask him to come back and, and uh, give us his take on what's going on in our world and what has happened in the last year or so. And so he has graciously agreed to come. You might know him as a, a pastor of 40 years at the Grace Brethren Church up in Polaris, um, radio Bible teacher, and uh, a husband and father and many things, but um, we're just privileged to have him here this weekend. So will you warm him once again? Uh, Did I say warm him? Will you welcome him warmly to back to new life tonight? (laughs) Much has happened since I was last here in our world and in the world of my own life. We got back from Israel on Palm Sunday. There were only 15 of us on this trip, and we spent a little less than two weeks in Israel. I asked God as I was traveling from place to place and even in preparation to go, if he would answer a couple of very important questions for me. My grandfather believed that Jesus would come in his day, and he didn't. My grandfather's grandfather believed that Jesus would come in his day, and he didn't. The Apostle Paul believed that Jesus would come in his day, and he didn't. But in each of my ancestors, all the way back to Paul, there were things happening in the world that signaled the coming of Jesus Christ back to the world. The question I wanted to know from the Lord was, what's happening now today in my lifetime that's unique and peculiar that my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and that even the Apostle Paul did not see in his day? Things that correspond to the signs that are given to us in Scripture about our Lord's return. And he answered that prayer magnificently. Since I've been with you, there has been a global crash. We still haven't felt the effects of it yet, but we will. There's a new administration, and the ambitions of that administration are already declared to break the bank. There's a new world government that is taking place in our world, new arrangements, new new contacts, new treaties that are being signed. The whole world of the Middle East is quite different tonight than it was a year ago when I was here with you. And I could go on and on and on. Did you hear about the Jewish man, the businessman that was going to to Israel on a business trip for two weeks? So he went to the bank and he told the banker, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. I need to borrow $5,000 for my expenses on this trip. And uh, he said, there's my automobile sitting out in front, a very, very expensive. He said, here's the title, here's the deed, here's everything necessary. Would you take that as collateral for the $5,000 loan? The teller said, you have to talk to the, you know, the banker. Met with the banker. The banker said, yeah, everything seems to be in order. Here's your $5,000. And the businessman left. Well, before he drove it down to the garage, they checked it out, and it was an authentic, very, very $350,000 car, immaculate condition, and it did indeed belong to the owner, the businessman. When he returned to the bank two weeks later, he came in with his receipt, asked how much he owed them. He paid the $5,000 back and paid $15.61. That was the charge for the interest. The banker said, sir, we're curious. We did some research while you were gone. We discovered that you're an extremely wealthy man. We have no idea why in the world you would need to borrow $5,000 and why you would put this expensive car up as collateral. 
And he said, well, I thought a long time about my trip. And he said, I wanted to find a place in New York where I could uh, park my car for $15.61 for two weeks <laughs> and have every assurance that when I returned it would be found in good condition. You know, God's a, like, like, a lot like that Jewish businessman. God does things, and we think he looks very stupid. We think we could consult with God and tell him how to do things better. Truth of the matter is, we really don't understand what God's about. That became very apparent to me recently. been invited to go to a church and speak on prophecy. And the leader of that group said, I want you, first of all, to answer a question for the people. Why do you study prophecy? What's so exciting about prophecy? Why do you get so turned on with prophecy? And I thought and thought and thought about that. And I became honest in my own heart. And tonight I want to tell you why I'm excited about prophecy. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation. And look with me, please, at chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> this verse tells us why God gave us this book. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The book of the Revelation contains 22 chapters. It's the last book in your Bible. Many of you have probably never read it. You've been scared to death to read it. Or you've been frightened by somebody else who read it and didn't understand it. The reason most people don't understand the book of the Revelation is because it's an autobiographical sketch. It's all about a person. And when you catch on to that, when you see that, that all prophecy is about one person, Jesus Christ, suddenly the subject becomes very intriguing. Now look again at the verse, Revelation 1.1. This is the revelation, that word means the disclosure, the opening up, the unveiling, if you please, of Jesus Christ. This book is meant to show us Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves, that's us, what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all that he saw. Everything that John writes about in this book has one focus, Jesus Christ. It's not about dragons. It's not about horns. It's really not about wars and rumors of wars. It's really not about earthquakes. And massive, massive, massive destruction. It's not about that at all. It's not even about Satan and about his demons and about the place called the abyss. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. And when you see that, then the book takes on a whole new life. Turn back to chapter 19 with me and let me show you that again. In chapter 19, toward the close of all the things that John saw and he's written down, we read in chapter 19 and in verse 10, I fell, John says, at his feet to worship him as his angel guide. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Every place God makes a proclamation, it's intended to tell us about Jesus. No exceptions. What's the earliest prophecy written in your Bible? Genesis 1, verse 1. That's the first prophecy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's prophecy. You weren't there, Charlie. He was. And he graciously tells us how we came into being. When you turn to later Revelation, like John 1 or Colossians, it says that Jesus, the Word, was the one who was the creator, 
the active creator in that great act of creation. So Genesis 1.1 is designed to introduce us to the creator, and his name is Jesus. Genesis 1.1. The last verse in the book of the Revelation quotes Jesus. And what does he say? I'm coming quickly. Get ready. Get ready. Now, most of us, in our thinking, in our study, in our singing, celebrate the past. He came into the world, became a man through the womb of the virgin. In the city of Bethlehem, he was born. He grew up, performed spectacular miracles, and sometimes no miracles when there was equal need present. He was then betrayed, crucified, his body laid in the grave. Three days later, grave opened and his body wasn't there. He had been resurrected. He appeared to his disciples and taught them for 40 days, 40 nights about the kingdom of God. Who's the king in the kingdom of God? Oh, that was anemic. <laughs> Who's the king in the kingdom of God? Jesus. Jesus. You bet your bottom boots. And anything you know about the kingdom that doesn't lead to the king <laughs> is unnecessary information. Then, of course, we like to think about the benefits to us. We are saved, and that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Incredible to be forgiven of your sins and to know that you have eternal life. To know that Jesus is going to come. We're going to be raised, resurrected from the dead. We're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. That's all wonderful and good, but that can be very selfish. And many times we can worship that experience instead of worshiping the one who created the experience. The one who asks us to come and rule and reign with him. The one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We rarely think about what happened 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, gathered his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he departed from them. And a cloud received him out of their sight. He went back to heaven. We don't think much about what he's doing now if it doesn't relate to us. The book of the Revelation <coughs> is an autobiographical study of Jesus from his exaltation, his ascension, all the way to his return. I've not done the study myself, but people that I trust very much tell me that for every verse of Scripture that talks about Jesus in his first coming, there are eight that talk about Jesus and his next coming. And that's what the book of the Revelation is all about. It tells us what's going to happen leading up to and when Jesus comes back from heaven a second time. This time, not a baby. This time, not a manger. When he returns again, the book of the Revelation tells us what that will be like, what he will do, and what will happen following that? And that's why the book of the Revelation is so exciting. And that's why prophecy excites me. I had a son that played soccer. One afternoon I was watching a game, and it was a phenomenal, just a phenomenal game. One of the players was in the groove that day. Everything that player touched either went in the goal or went to somebody who put it in the goal. And the stands were just going crazy. I wasn't. He was on the other team. My son was trying to guard him. That was a long afternoon. I wasn't cheering for the other team. I could admire the other team's style. I could admire their uniforms. And I could admire the skill with which they played. But my heart was not for the other team. My heart was for the home team. Where's your heart tonight? Who are you rooting for? in the great game of life. Jesus? You know, he's getting bad press. You know, he's pretty much ignored.
by the vast hordes of people all around us. Many things that he says are true are being thrown out of churches left and right. And guys who will call themselves clergy are denying the very things that he lived and died for. <clears throat> He's not very popular. Is he popular with you? Well, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. And I want to show you quickly tonight how easy it is to understand. It's all about him. In the first three chapters, you meet Jesus Christ in his present ministry where he's working with the churches. You see him as John saw him in the last verses of chapter 1. But come quickly, please, to chapter 4. And here you see Jesus where John saw him in heaven. And there's a great throne room and huge masses of angels. And they're all waiting and waiting and waiting for someone to come and take a scroll. A scroll is an ancient book. It's rolled up and it was sealed with seven seals. And the question that filled heaven, where can we find someone who is worthy to take that seal and unloose or take that seven seal book and unleash, un, unleash the seven seals? And finally, they found Jesus. I say finally because John was very concerned that they wouldn't find anyone as he watched this great drama in heaven. Jesus was the only one worthy. What does that seven-sealed scroll stand for? It stands, we would call it, it stands for the title deed of the universe. That's what it represents. And who in all the universe was worthy to take the title deed back from the usurper, His Majesty the devil and Satan, take it back from him, destroy his kingdom, and instead build a kingdom of righteousness and truth in the universe, not just the earth, the universe. Jesus is worthy. And so in chapter 6, you see him snapping the seals. He snaps the first seal, and what he, when he does that in heaven, something happens on earth. An earthly ruler rises in power. He snaps the second seal. Something happens on earth. There is a great war that breaks out. And as a result of that war and the pestilence and famine that follow, one out of every four citizens in the world dies. I believe we're on the cusp of that war. He opens the fifth seal, has communication with people that have died, whose souls are in heaven. He opens the sixth seal, and all the kings and all the people of the earth are scared to death as they see a manifestation of King Jesus in the heavens. And they beg for the rocks to fall upon them. No place to hide. He opens the seventh seal. That's over in, in chapter uh, 8. And there's silence in heaven. Silence in heaven for half an hour. Why? As heaven reflects upon what's coming to pass upon the earth, silence is the most appropriate response. Five angels or seven angels then step up to blow trumpets. They are the ministers of Jesus Christ to announce judgment upon the earth. And their judgments are swift and furious. Especially the last three of those seven. They are called the three woes. The abyss is opened in the fifth. And out of the abyss come creatures that are easily described as being unearthly. Creatures that are demonic. Spirits given bodies. And they do such damage and torment on the earth that for a period of months men will seek to die and not be able to die. Now who's directing that? King Jesus. That gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he's the one initiating that through the angel. He opens this, uh, the, the sixth trumpet blow. The sixth angel blows the trumpet. And as a result of what's unleashed on the earth, one third one-third of the people on the earth are slain.
you have to turn over to chapter to chapter 11 for the seventh trumpet to speak. And when the seventh trumpet speaks its judgment, again, heaven goes on red alert. When we come then to chapter 15, there are seven more judgments that King Jesus unleashes upon the earth. They are called bowls of wrath. They are horrible. They are deadly. They're very fatal. Now, that probably sounds a little tough. To hear that the one who died on the cross to save men from their sins will one day ascend the throne and bring judgment upon men and their sins, judgment unto death. But that's what the book of Revelation tells us is coming. Jesus Christ is going to deal with all of the usurpers of the powers of the earth that now hold sway, and he's going to defeat them. And then in chapter 19, we see King Jesus having unleashed these series of judgments. He personally comes back. Look at it. It's worth reading. Chapter 19, the Lord Jesus says, that, uh, or the heavens are open in verse 11. I saw heaven open. There was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Oh, I thought Jesus was a peacemaker. Jesus cannot make peace where there are rebels. He judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. On his head were numerous crowns. He had a name written that no man knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Sobering for me. To think that when Jesus Christ returns to the earth the next time, he will not come offering salvation. He will come issuing judgment. The battle that he engages is called the Battle of Armageddon. And you can read about it there in chapter 19 if you wish. The Bible tells us that after the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus will then sit upon the throne of his glory here on the earth and all the people that are left on the earth will be gathered before him, and they'll be separated into two groups. One group are sheep, one group are goats. The thing that distinguishes them is their faith and obedience toward the Lord Jesus Christ or the absence of that faith and obedience. And that faith and love will be demonstrated during the period of all of these wars and tribulations by how folks treat these my brethren, Jesus' brethren. We call them Jews. And those who are goats will be removed from the earth in judgment, and the sheep will enter the kingdom. And then the Bible tells us that Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's what chapter 20 tells us. And for a thousand years, Jesus Christ will rule upon the earth, Children will be born. Families will operate and function. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. He'll go up upon the face of the earth, and he'll be able to deceive people who've lived in a perfect world, a world where wild animals do not eat up each other, a wild where, where, where the curse is lifted and where there's food for everybody, where there is no disease, no accident, no fires, those kinds of things that destroy men's lives and properties today. An incredible thousand years. But Satan will be successful in deceiving them, even though King Jesus himself has been the beneficiary to the people living on the earth during that thousand years. And the Bible says that God sends fire of heaven and destroys those who rebel. And then the Bible says that there's a great white throne set up in the, in the heavens. Jesus Christ sits upon the throne. 
Everybody who ever lived and died without trusting Jesus Christ as Savior will be resurrected. They'll be called, summoned before him, and they'll be judged based upon their works, which are carefully reported in the books that God records. Meanwhile, this present heaven and earth is going to dissolve in a ball of fire. Heavens will melt with a fervent heat. The elements will melt and disappear. It's a, it's a very dramatic scene. And then when that judgment is over, John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. That's chapter 21 and 22. And there John talks about God creating a perfect new world, a new heavens, a new earth. In that new earth, there will be no sun, there'll be no sea, there'll be no sin, there'll be no separation, no sorrow. It's going to be a phenomenal place, a whole new world, a whole new beginning. King Jesus will be the one doing all of that. And then John says, I saw a marvelous city descending from God out of heaven and comes down and it's located like a satellite in relationship to that new heavens and that new earth. And then John says, that's as much as I could see. And God calls the curtain, closes the curtain. Now, why such a book? Well, because Jesus, upon the cross, died not just to save me from my sin and you from your sin, and not just to save every person in the world from their sin, but he died upon the cross to redeem the whole world, the whole universe, to take the curse of sin off of the world and to replace it with a whole new world, a whole new heavens and a whole new earth. And the text says that those who live with him in that world will live and reign with him forever and ever and ever. <clears throat> That's the story about Jesus. Now, there's some other detail in there that I didn't bother to point out to you. It's interesting detail. But the main pillars of the book all point to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is in the midst of his church calling people to repentance and to love him and serve him. He then takes the scroll and executes judgment directed upon the earth and its systems of evil, its systems of rebellion. And he won't quit that judgment until all evil has been destroyed, till all the demons have been incarcerated, till Satan himself is bound in the abyss. You like that story? Well, you won't unless you're rooting for Jesus. And even if you're rooting for Jesus, there's some parts of it where you're going to stop and look and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at the last chapter of the book of the Revelation with me, please. Revelation. Here we get to hear Jesus speak the closing words. These are the last words he spoke when the Bible was finished. <clears throat> In chap Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, look. I am coming quickly, he said. Blessed is the one who keeps the prof prophetic words of this book. Can't keep them if you don't know them. I would encourage you to make it your first priority to read this book about Jesus. Look what else Jesus says. Verse 12, look, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. So Jesus will see that each of us receive according to what we've done. Fair, just. So what have you done? Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the city by the gates. Why? Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. He signs off on the book that John wrote as John described for us the things that he saw Jesus doing in the future. John said, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. What's your response? Last Thursday night, my wife and I were attending a, uh, we're out of town, uh, and I, I was um, preparing to, to speak. She had picked up the journal, the Columbus Dispatch, as we left the house, left town. That evening, in the hotel room where we were staying, she read this article to me. She started reading it, and I said, whoa, stop, start over again. She read it a second time. She read it all the way through, and I said, read that again, all the way through. She read it through again. I, uh, I could not go to sleep last Thursday night for about four or five hours. Here's what the article says. The Obama administration and international negotiators are drafting a new strategy for Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. They expect to unveil it within six weeks. Quoting Tony Blair. This plan, being devised by the U.S. administration with input from others, should offer renewed hope, the former Prime Minister of Britain told Palestinian reporters. President Barack Obama is holding separate meetings at the White House this month with Israeli, Palestinian, and Egyptian leaders. The quartet will then convene to discuss this strategy, Blair said. The quartet is the United States, United Nations, European Union, and Russia. Israel's new leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, has yet to commit to a two-state solution and supports the continued expansion of Israeli settlements in areas the Palestinians seek for their state. The Palestinians are plagued by crippling international division, with Gaza run by Hamas militants and the West Bank by U.S.-backed Palestinian President Abbas. Efforts to forge Palestinian unity have failed. Bible says that that first seal Jesus snaps in heaven will unleash a very special world leader on a mission. And the prophecies of God's Word teach that the first thing that mission will involve will be signing a treaty with the majority of the Jewish people. And that will bring peace to the nation of Israel and security for a period of seven years. It's promised to do that. Now, is this that peace plan? Is the one walking the world today who has committed himself to forging peace in the Middle East, is this in six weeks the plan that fits and mirrors that prophecy of Daniel? I don't know. But it could be. So what? The picture that this book paints of that time that precedes Jesus returning to the earth That picture is in place tonight. The elements are all there. Perhaps Mr. Obama will be able to lead 
the Western world into a peace treaty settlement with the nation of Israel. And that peace treaty may be the one that Daniel described and that Revelation anticipates. If so, then we are on the cusp of the most exciting and dramatic event in human history. And that's the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And remember, before he returns to the earth physically, there is a seven-year period that precedes his return when he himself will unleash the forces of judgment and when he himself will cleanse the earth of all who will not, all who refuse to believe. Pretty harsh. But that's what the Bible says. Our Father in heaven tonight, the world is on a collision course with Jesus Christ. Many do not realize it. He will not be spurned and mocked, ridiculed, rejected forever. His plan to deal with the forces that destroy the earth, that promote sin, unrighteousness, greed, his power and his plan to deal with those things have been announced years and years and years ago. We await his return. We want to see him experience the exaltation, the power, the glory that is his due. We long, Father, we long to see this world transformed. And we long to see that new heaven and new earth that he has promised to prepare. As we read the newspapers, it seems to me we see evidences all around us that that period of time is, is about to begin. There may be someone here tonight, Lord Jesus, who doesn't know you, who has not yet opened heart and life to receive you as personal Lord and Savior. Pray that you would speak deeply to their hearts tonight. Remind them that the days of opportunity may well be closing. And those of us who know the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us brave hearts to rejoice and celebrate in his return, knowing it will not be pleasant for those who refuse him. Knowing full well that for your plan to be accomplished, for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth, then all the other kingdoms of this world must be and will be destroyed. I pray, Father, that you would um, both sober our hearts and excite our spirits. Thank you for your word. Speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Appreciate that from Dr. Custer tonight. Would you let him know that? You finished a little early. So if I could impose upon you, um, I think there are some things that, that I'm certainly curious about, and, and I think a lot of us are. You just returned from Israel. Last year you taught us that God's plan of the ages revolves around Israel. What's going on over there? What's the mood that you sensed as you were there in that nation recently? Uh, there is there's a great recognition in Israel that uh, that the support that she has enjoyed from the United States is coming to an end. 
and that the support she has received from other nations of the world is over. She realizes that, and um, her leaders are desperately looking for some way to deal with the insurmountable forces that surround them and to um, uh, find peace, to establish peace. That was very evident. Israel has also made a number of recent discoveries, you've probably read of most of them, which uh, are extremely good news for her nationally. She now has sufficient, she's discovered sufficient natural gas that Israel will be energy independent for the next 100 to 150 years. And she will have gas to sell. That will enable her to retrofit her major industries into gas rather than coal. It will enable her to quickly build six or seven more plants where they can take the water and make the water soluble, make the water. The most precious commodity in the Middle East is not oil. It's water. You can't drink oil. And Israel has, at the moment, control over the best major natural water supply in the Middle East. And that would have to do with Mount Hermon and uh, with uh, the Sea of Galilee, etc. She also has learned some phenomenal uh, skills in taking salt water and fixing uh, salt water so it can be used for human consumption. They also know that there's a huge reservoir, a huge, huge, huge reservoir of fresh water under the uh, Negev, which is the southern part of the land of Israel. The problem is it's very deep, and when it's pumped up, they would have to do some process of removing certain of the minerals. But with the energy that she has available to her now, uh, they're already predicting that in 10 years, that whole Negev will blossom like a rose because they'll have plenty of energy to bring the water up, fix it, and spread it out on the land, and immediately that, that whole area that will turn into a garden. Food is also a commodity that's uh, very, very important in the Middle East. So we saw that. Uh, we also saw, we were also there during the time that uh, the new administration for Israel was installed, and we heard the, the um, what shall I say, the, the new administration in Israel has discovered that the last 30 years of peace by giving up land doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And so the new administration has resolved not to continue that policy. And we heard a lot. There's a lot going on in Israel regarding Iran and the uh, possibility of the nuclear facility there. Um, Israel has declared over and again that she will not live in under the sway of that nuclear uh, capacity. So as, as, um, as a, a student or as a, an interesting interest, a person interested in scripture, all of that is enormously, enormously important. It means we're living in a time of extremely heightened tension, a time when there must be resolution. Um, there will either be major resolution or major war in the next 18 months. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel right. that speaks of an invasion mm-hmm. and so forth, mm-hmm. and you have some um, strong feelings about that. How close are we to that fulfillment of that prophecy? Well, those armies are already trained, and many of them are in position. Uh, if you go back and study Ezekiel 30, 39, the, the Battle of Gog and Magog, if you study that and find out what those fancy names mean, where those names are located, you'll find out that it involves the most vocal enemies of Israel and the most dominant players in the Middle East. Uh, Persia is mentioned there. That is Iran. Uh, Turkey is mentioned there. Uh, Libya is mentioned. Sudan is mentioned. Syria is mentioned, Russia or the, or the area north of Turkey is mentioned. And the thing that's so important about Ezekiel 30, 39, God says that that's an invasion that he orchestrates. God says he's going to put hooks in the jaws of, of the leader of that invasion and draw them in. The other thing that's so, de- so amazing 
is that God is going to, in that war, supernaturally protect the nation of Israel and do it in such a way that the invading armies will all die. It'll take them seven months to bury the dead. Uh, the invading armies are all going to die on the mountains of Israel. And the other part is all the nations of the world will realize that that battle was supernatural, that God himself uh, identified God himself through that battle identified himself as the uh, covenant-keeping God of Israel. Where do you see that war, that invasion, in the time frame of God's prophetic plan? First, the next thing that happens is the rapture. That could happen tonight. After the rapture, then the signing of that treaty could take place. That treaty will issue in a, in a period of uh, peace, and during that, that immediate peace, that's when that battle takes place. It's when the, the nations, uh, the Jews who've come back from the nations of the world settle in the mountains of Israel. It's when they um, are living, uh, what shall I say, in a, in a uh, they are living in peace, living in a time without expectation. And by the way, the mountains of Israel is the biblical phrase for the same territory we call the West Bank. Same identity identical area, which would indicate that the uh, settlement that the Antichrist proposes, that the world ruler proposes with the nation of Israel, will be one that will uh, force recon uh, uh, concessions on both sides of, of the issue, and um, a part of that concession will probably be the restoration of access to the Temple Mount and probably be some concession in what are now the mountains of Israel or the West Bank that will be given over to the, uh, the Jewish control. But I believe we're really living in momentous days. Right? One last one. Um, in the back we were talking, you said that uh, you're seeing some new parallels when Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, yes. so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Could you talk about that for a couple minutes? Well, uh, Jesus said that... Um, that the days, the days just before he returns would be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, men were marrying, giving in marriage, eating, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, and they knew not until the flood came and took it all away. Well, that attitude, eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, is not uh, describing excessive immorality. It's describing excessive unconcern, total, absolute refusal. Noah built the ark and preached to his neighborhood for a hundred years plus. Then, seven days before, before the flood came, God said to Noah, God said to Noah that he was going to bring to him the animals that would go into the ark. Noah didn't go out and get them. God brought them to him. You can imagine Noah's neighbor having a conversation with Noah, those animals, Noah, are messing up my garden, they're trampling on my yard, they're doing this, 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 this. And Noah's saying, I'm not, I'm not the one bringing the animals in. God is doing this, and you'll notice they're going right into the ark. Don't you understand that what I've been saying about this huge world flood is really true? This is not just a joke. It's not it's, this is not fun and games. Uh, won't you please come with me into the ark? And it occurred to me that that parade of animals was like what's happening in Israel today. That is, we are seeing things happen in the nation, in the land of Israel today, that reflect very clear, specific biblical promises that were not true any other time since 70, since, oh, actually since Jesus went back to heaven. But we are, we are seeing those things happen right now. And I thought that's like the parade of animals coming into the ark. Now, we're going to be gone. <clears throat> Christians, we're going to be in heaven when that, uh, when that devastation breaks out on the earth. Because before Jesus snaps that first seal, he's going to call us to heaven. And we'll be like John. We'll have a heavenly seat. And that's wonderful for us. Great for us. Sure isn't wonderful for our neighbors. 
Let me ask you one last question. Because <laughs> I got you here. Right. <laughs> You're on the spot. That's right. Um, next weekend, I'm going to be teaching here on the Bema Seat judgment of believers that you referred to tonight. Where do you see that in God's prophetic calendar? Right after, right after the rapture, then the judgment seat of Christ takes place. I, I say that based upon uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, the first four verses. I, I was a pastor in Iowa for four years. Many of those farmers raised pigs. And I would go out to visit them and, and go out and work with them side by side. When I came home in the evening, my wife had a standing rule. I couldn't wear those clothes into the house. So we had an anteroom between the garage and the main house, and she would see that my bathing suit and a T-shirt was hanging there, and I would have to get out of the car, get into that anteroom, strip down, put on my bathing suit, take all those horrible-smelling clothes around, put them at the back, or take them down put them in the dishwasher. Then I could go in the house. That's what the beam of seat judgment is. It's when all the saints, the, the children of God, the the brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he takes our works, our lives, and examines them. And what is not worthy, he destroys so that we are totally clean, totally clear to enjoy not only his presence but uh, fellowship with each other. Maybe I should have you come back next weekend and give that message. I want to come back and hear it. <laughs> Let's thank Dr. Jim one more time. And uh, let's stand together, and we're going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you caught the point of the message tonight is Jesus.